Hello, this is Sean Carlson, and you're listening to the Sirens of Audio. G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. My name's Dwayne. And my name is Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. G'day Philip. How are you? I am excellent, thank you, in a great spirit. Yeah, you look like you're in a very jovial mood this evening. I am, it's been a lovely day, the weather's been <laughs> lovely, lovely, um, well we're, we're of course in uh, uh, fall for our American listeners, or um, autumn for the uh, English and us. So, but yeah, beautiful warm days, cooler nights, all's right with the world. Excellent. Hmm. We've, we've got a good show lined up today because we're going to be speaking with a big Finnish director and actor. Uh, he's doing more directing lately, and that's Barnaby. And soon to be writer. Soon to be writer. I was, yes, there's something on the website. He's written a river song coming up. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, excellent. We'll be able to talk to him about that too. So that's fantastic. He's getting very involved with with all things Big Finish. So looking forward to, to chatting with uh, Barnaby later on in the podcast. But first of all, uh, I just want to start off with a bit of feedback that I wanted to throw in uh, a more recent show, but I forgot. In the words of Basil Fawlty, I'm so sorry, I'm not perfect. Uh, but I wanted to throw it in. It's a really nice uh, email. Uh, this is from uh, Jonathan or Jack W. Kirk from Madison, Wisconsin in the USA, one of our American listeners. So, woohoo, we love it. Yeah. He says, Dwayne and Philip, hi there. And hi. in brackets, big finish podcast joke. I'm not sure what that means. Do you know what it means? I don't know what no. it means. No. I've been listening. You'll have to explain that to us, Jack. I've been listening and enjoying the podcast for about a year, I think. In fact, uh, I can confirm it was a year. Uh, because you say, I was introduced to your podcast via the Big Finish podcast when Dwayne went on to talk about the interview with Paul Sprague that you were featuring here. I very much enjoyed you guys. I felt compelled to write in for the first time when a podcast or two ago you were talking about whether you should be controversial. I just wanted to let you know my take as one of your listeners. I think you should avoid being intentionally controversial and political. There are so many things that are in your face political these days, and it is refreshing and uplifting just to listen to someone talk about something they love and I love as well. I think political and controversial things are important to talk about, but not in a way of trying to stir people up and not in a context that is not supposed to be political. If you really want to talk about politics and how it relates to Doctor Who, I would suggest starting a separate podcast where that's the focus. Just my thoughts as your listener. It's your podcast, so you can do whatever you want. I also wanted to say I would really like for you to have Nick Briggs on the podcast again and do an in-depth interview with him about his life and career. I know he's very busy, but just let him know 
His fans are crying out for more. Thanks for putting on this lovely podcast. All the best. And that was Jack uh, from Madison, Wisconsin. So awesome email, Jack. Thank you very much. Appreciate your feedback on the uh, the controversial topic. I was I was yeah at the time I was talking about talking about controversial subjects to try and get more listeners, make it a bit clickbaity that kind of thing, uh, because that's that seemed to be to me at the time to be where a lot of listeners were going, where all these controversial subjects were. But we're happy to stay doing what we're doing, aren't we, Philip? We are indeed. I mean, there is a place <laughs> to talk politics in terms of when the stories are pushing you in a particular political view, and, and Doctor Who has never avoided politics, and sometimes it swings to the left and sometimes it swings to the right, so it's, it's helpful sometimes and useful if, if you know authors have are making political points, and we're not going to avoid politics as such, but we're not going to get into the political sphere of you know arguing politicians or issues, that's not, that's not what we're about. Yeah, absolutely. So... Also mentioning uh, his desire to have Nick Briggs on the show, all I can say, Jack, is watch this space. Wouldn't it be lovely? It would be lovely, wouldn't it, Philip? It would be lovely. (laughs) Right. Uh, One more thing to do before we talk with Barnaby. You know what it is? No, what's that, Dwayne? We have some jumping to do, and we're going to jump straight into a rabbit hole. Here we go. Right, we're in the rabbit hole, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to talk about directors, because Barnaby is our guest tonight, and he's prolific at the moment as a director, obviously coming in to do writing, as you just mentioned, as well. But I've been thinking about the big Finnish directors, and I can only think of one director for Big Finish out of all the main directors. Actually, I can think of two. Uh, because I'm I'm thinking of Ken Bentley and I'm thinking of Jason Haig Ellery. Those two directors are the only ones out of all the directors in Big Finish that aren't actors as well. So do you think, Philip, that uh, having a handle on the acting side of things is beneficial for Big Finish? And if so, how so? Wow, I do love how you just throw these questions. I mean, I could, <laughs> this I is cold. Actually, this is cold, folks. I he doesn't know, know I, that's his coming. <laughs> yeah, I honestly never know what he's going to throw at me because if I had time to prepare some stuff, I could actually sound so much smarter. So I just don't think I don't. <laughs> you think, always um, sound smart, Philip. Yeah, you just don't want me sounding too smart. I know you don't. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting actually because directing in terms of uh, career in the olden days, so you know, the BBC directors' courses um, when television first started, even uh, radio. Um, when when this TV went into production, it was never actors, and I think because there was a whole skill set required of directors. Theatre traditionally had often been um, directed by actors, so a lot of actors became directors and and, and directed their fellow castmates. But when the whole technical side of television started, it became almost impossible. Actors just didn't have the skills at the time. Though it's interesting that you know over. Yeah, I mean, I think in particular a lot of American shows, um, most of the Star Trek actors um, started trailing the directors and learning how to direct. So lots of them have gone on to very good directing careers. Um, even shows like ER, a number of the cast from there started shadowing the directors and learning how to direct by copying and, and actually learning the skills. So I guess it's a skill set that could be learnt. 
Well, um, even so- if you go right back to to Star Trek, the motion pictures where uh, Leonard Nimoy started directing. That's right. Yep. Uh, goes right back that far. Yep. So, so it was something that started to happen, but certainly in the, in the early days of television, it became a, a, a separate entity. But it's interesting now seeing more and more. But as you talk to actors, the thing about a director, the job of a director is to help an actor understand and progress a character beyond what they, what they need to do themselves. And so part of being able to give notes to an actor is being able to be an actor is, is part of, makes, makes us strong for that. So there is a whole technical side. And so a lot of directors, they, they need the technical side. They need, you know, where things have to be placed. Even in terms of audio, that's important in terms of the microphones, the sound, the backup and all those sort of things. But those are all skills that can be developed. All the actors that we're talking about, nearly all of them, um, who have come up through Big Finish ranks, actually started as actors on Big Finish, and no doubt were watching the technical side, watching how things were created and, and trailing and learning that way. And the thing about acting, of course, is it's just such a... Who knows when you're going to have, to have the next job? And so actors traditionally have always had to have <laughs> second careers. and often, you know, If you don't want to be waiting in a bar somewhere, um, learning how to... to so starting to write, starting to direct are ways that a lot of people have then developed. So I do think that... Uh, an actor brings other things. Ken, I mean, Ken Bentley is stunning, but Ken Bentley was trained as a theatre director. Yes, so that's what I, I was, was going to say. That he's got the theatre background, so I yeah. think, and, and and all these directors for Big Finish have that theatre background. Yeah. So, but I mean, Jason Hagel is the least because he's got yes. more of a producing side of things. Rather, but he doesn't side. direct too much. He you only see him very occasionally. Yeah, and it's obviously it's, it's still passion projects, and often more in the early days. I think when Gary was just. Overworked and overswamped, and that yeah, big finish was running with a you know, staff of three or something. He was stepping a lot more then. Um, but yeah, Ken Bentley has the theatre background. He so he was trained as a theatre director, so he was actually trained once again uh, in that era when when he used to train directors. But all the other big finish directors talk about all all actors, and you actually see different directors do different things. So Louise Jamison, when she directs, there's a lot more emotion in terms of. Ca- what's happening with the character. So she really goes for the, the emotional character parts. Um, someone puts pausing. Oh, Helen Goldwyn. Helen Goldwyn's all about pausing. And so the dialogue has amazing pauses happening in between scenes, which actually add heightened tension, heightened um, emphasis there. Um, so you can actually start seeing, I can almost now listen to something and know who's directed it. Yeah. I, I love Lisa Bauman's, the way she is almost a minimalist when it comes to, music as well she doesn't like to jam pack her stories full of music either Le- so that's Lisa, that's one of her tropes yeah but Lisa actually makes the it's actually about the dialogue she makes sing and so all her emphasis in terms of clarity of dialogue and so once again how she paces her dialogue how she how she's how she um how the actors phrase she actually does a lot of work with phraseology so in fact the music comes from the voices so yeah, it, you, you can listen to a director and, and nine times out of ten now I'll know who's directing and occasionally why something strange happens and you go, oh, hang on, who's the director, who's the writer? Um, so I mean, the, the, the writer who stood out most for me most recently was James Kettle. That every time I heard James Kettle's writing, because I, I don't look at casts before they come out, I, I listen, I try to listen to production not knowing who's in it. Um, I, do, I don't look at the covers, I don't look at anything in particular. I try and go as blind as I possibly can. And that's why you know, James Kettle's writing really stood out as, as someone new and vibrant in terms of what he was doing. And once again, that happened to me the other day in the um, Unbound box sets, which I'd forgotten he was writing for. And I was halfway through, I was thinking, oh, hang on, this is really... <laughs> when I looked up, oh, there goes James Kettle. 
so yeah, yeah. Back to but back to the original point. Yeah, I think actors can speak to actors in a language in a way that a lot of people can't. Yeah, I did think of one more director that I'm not sure if he's got an acting background. Uh, Scott Hancock. I don't, no, I don't. Think, I'm pretty sure he doesn't does have an acting background. So, so there's another one. Done a lot. Done a lot of television production things. He his directing has really come on. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's ten years since. Dorian Gray, and I think Dorian Gray was one of the first things he started directing. Um, but actually, yeah, his directing, his writing, his um, storytelling, um, yeah, that's that's a, I was going to say young man, he's not quite so young anymore. He was certainly a young man when he started working Big Finish stuff, but he had pretty extraordinary stuff that he's producing as well. Yeah, so there you go. Interesting topic, and it's going to be great to get Barnaby Kay's insights in just a moment. And before we speak with him, Here is something that Barnaby has been working on recently. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Peladon. Welcome, my friends, to Peladon, a proud planet where the eyes of the people are set firmly on the future. See the prophet. See the divinity. See Skarn, the holy man of Peladon. Another miracle! It's no miracle, Harfair! This promises to make the most interesting report I have written in years. Our mountain speaks to us and has done so for centuries. How lovely! Such a visceral part of Peladon lore. Uh, uh, Ambassador Ribble, we thought you had gone. Our tourist needs to be sure of all potential threats, Your Majesty. The Temple Acolytes will stay with Solana. Good. I'm not missing my chance to meet Alpha Centauri. Go on, game if you are. That's the spirit. (laughs) Fight to be heard. Just as Agador once roared from the forest that stood on this wasteland. (laughs) (laughs) You will listen! This was woven from the webs of the last grey spider. And now here it shimmers with the last great seamstress poetry. You are in a hurry, aren't you? Was dashing for haberdashery. I'm the doctor, your new apprentice. I know where you wish me to go. I need you to go into the streets below, round up these creatures, find out who's brought them here. Big finish. We love stories. This evening's guest has a long history and a family history of acting. His father and grandfather were both in the business. He himself has had a large stellar career on theatre, um, on TV and uh, in, in the other film, and now on audio as well. Um, we welcome Barnaby Kay. Barnaby, thank you for joining us. Hi. You're very welcome. Great pleasure. Yeah. Now, where, where are we speaking to you from? Um, I am out in the countryside today, um, uh, having a quiet time. A big finish have got me on um, some golden handcuffs uh, writing, um, and they've put me in this rather wonderful environment to do it in. That sounds um, fantastic. So, uh, I, I, yeah. I noticed that you have a um, the first writing gig coming up, and we'll talk about that a bit later. So I see that sure. you've written a, a story for a River Song. Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah so how great, exciting. Very so, exciting. So you really are dabbling your hands now across the board in all sorts of things. Yes, absolutely. Which is, I'm so grateful to Big Finish for the for the opportunity because obviously during early lockdowns here, um, 
and everywhere all over the world the the acting work just you know the the theater business show business was decimated and and there was nothing happening um and uh and i built a a little studio in my house and and called up big finish and said you know I, i'm i'm all set up um and uh and they were fantastic and and offered me quite a lot of work as an actor quite early on and then one day i said um are you ever short any directors and they said yes and here's peladon um <laughs> you're on <laughs> so so I, I was thrown in immediately into the deep end um uh, and they've been uh, they've been very very good to me ever since that's fantastic well let's, let's go back let's go back early days can we can we talk a bit about your childhood as i said you've you've come from a big acting family what was it, what was mm. it like growing up in a family full of from the profession um well it i mean it turned out that um so both my dad's parents were were amateur actors in Newcastle. They ran a, a, a theatre called the People's Theatre, which lots of the, the actors from the Northeast will know. And I've not spoken to Chris Eccleston about it, but I'm sure he he would have been um, at, at the People's Theatre himself uh, after they'd after they'd left. Um, so they were very much in the in the business um, uh, of of sort of semi pro work in uh, in Newcastle. Um, and my but also my mum's mum was a was an actress in uh, in dublin she was a she was an irish actress and did also came over with some uh, west end shows in, in, into london so it really has you know is it's two three now generations so so uh, it it was i mean in a way we 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 we're so sort of used to our own upbringings aren't we it doesn't seem odd to to have a dad who kept disappearing and my mum kept appearing on TV and, and my dad would be away for months doing uh, doing theatre work mainly. Um, and I'm seeing that with with my son. He's he's hugely unimpressed um, and hasn't watched anything that we've done on the telly. Um, and if we have to drag him to the theatre, I'm dragging him to see his mum in a play on uh, on Saturday night. You know, he's not really interested. <laughs> and so we're just mum and dad. We're very, very annoying. And, and my parents were much the same. Um, so I didn't. The only thing that the only thing the sort of my abiding memory from my childhood was how much they discouraged me from it. Um, as an option right from from very early on um and so i wasn't involved in any school productions i didn't do drama um uh, it was o levels at my time gcse's they're called now the, you know there was a drama course i could have done um but it wasn't an option my parents didn't want me to do it anyway um and it was only after my dad died shortly after that when i was 17 and and i met all these actors at his funeral these extraordinary people most of whom i knew but 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 some i just knew from the tv um and there was so much support for my family and for me particularly and, a, and an assumption that i would be going into the business that was what everybody at the funeral was just assuming and said when you when you apply for drama school come and see me and we'll work your speeches and there are other actors saying as soon as you're in the business let me know and i'll open some doors and and so there was no question that that's what i would be doing for as far as they were concerned and and that night the night of the funeral i said to my mum what day i'd experienced with these with these amazing people and she said that um that my dad used to come to bed saying i know barney's going to be an actor and there's nothing we can do about it but i just don't <laughs> feel i can encourage it and so i said i'm really sorry that's all i need and i just literally went off um uh, and did it <laughs> because that was my sort of my pink ticket 
So, uh, so, uh, and, and, and you know, and I was grateful for her sharing that with me because it because it really felt that I had his blessing. And then I went on to to have this, you know, extraordinary, particularly in the early years, but even now, most jobs I did for the first 15, 20 years, there would be at least two people working on the job who knew and worked with my dad. Um, and that and so that was why I was there, you know, was to sort of continue that continue it, continue the his business. Um, so it was hugely emotional and very encouraging and, and really exciting. Um, you, those early years of my career. Do you feel like you've got to know your father even better in some ways since he's passed on just because of all those connections? It, uh, I mean, I got to hear lots of great things, but, but what was most striking was, you know, I would go, I sort of follow him around. So I, so if I went on a, on a tour, which I did a lot with the Royal Shakespeare company and we'd go to a theater and someone would say, this is this, your dressing room was your dad's dressing room. And so I'd be in his, the room he sat in that wouldn't, you know, theatres are the same the world over. It won't yeah. have changed in the, you know, in the 30 years since he was last there. <laughs> so it was exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and, but I would be, I'm sitting in my dressing room, listening to stories, anecdotes from older actors that were anecdotes that they would have told my dad or happened to my dad or with my dad. So it was, it was just, it was just hearing those stories you know, things my mum didn't know and wasn't, you know, may have known some of them, but didn't, you know, didn't know entirely and hadn't heard from these people, you know, from the horses' mouths. Uh, and so that was the thrilling thing for me was was just feeling much, much closer to him. Um, that was the, that was, you know, we were a very tight-knit family, but it was just in his absence, feeling so close to him was was uh, was a real joy for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess as you say, an actor's life, so many months is spent away from home, doing the, mm. doing a business, you know, supporting the family. And you go yeah. back and you'd be telling some stories, but you can't tell everything that's happened. You can't tell everything, no. And, there, and brilliantly, he was such a wonderful person and so adored um, that there weren't any, there was no dirt to dig. You know, there was no, I mean, I had to carry that mantle really for the family, the kind of falling over in the Royal Shakespeare garden you know on the morning that you've got two shows that day and you just walked out of the pub you know that was I sort of felt that that needed to be rectified so I did a lot of that <laughs> on his behalf but he was so good and so well loved and I remember in my very first job and I was a sort of mouthy young very overconfident young actor because I'd been sort of poached out of drama school by the Royal Shakespeare Company. So I didn't finish my drama school training. And, uh, and so I felt like I was the absolute bee's knees. So I, we were rehearsing something and, and John Nettles was in it, who uh, plays Bergerac, was his big series in the UK. Um, but he's a wonderful theatre actor. And I'd known him all my life as a friend of my dad's. And, um, and, my, and working with him, that was my first experience of working with, with one of my dad's friends. And, and, uh, and so it was, it was great. But I got was mouthy in the re rehearsal and I said something to the director, which I would never, sort of thing I would never say now. Um, and John Nettle's response was, do you know that if we were working with his father, we wouldn't have half of this trouble? And so there was, a, and that was so warming. <laughs> that, that was the feeling that I was an upstart pain in the ass, and my dad, you know, my dad was this golden man I was meant to be following, but couldn't possibly match. Um, uh, and, and that was delightful. Do you want to because you you went to drama school, but you didn't finish because you were poached? Just talk a little well, bit. Well, poached is poached is in a sort of exaggeration. I I I I got out early. 
basically. Yeah. So where, where, yeah. where were you studying, and how did, how did you come to work for the Royal Shakespeare Company? I mean, it's, you know, still uh, oh, the most... Oh, prestigious theatre company in the world. Oh, I know, I know. Um, it, I know. And my dad never worked there and always wanted to. And it was my first job. Um, so that was sort of weird and, and slightly exciting. But but um, I was at Central School of Speech and Drama, which was the only drama school I wanted to go to because that's where my mum had been. Um, so I was sort of following in her footsteps too. Um, so I was at Central and I was in my final year and my dad's agents um, approached me and, and said, look, you know, in the, in the history of, you know, f- uh, as part of our, our history with your dad, we'd, we'd like to offer you representation, even if it's only temporarily. Um, and, and I was very grateful for that. And then, and they said, look, what we're going to do is send you to a few auditions just as a practice. We don't expect you to get the jobs because you're still training. And the first audition they sent me to was with, with three, directors at the Royal Shakespeare Company, Greg Doran, and um, Bill Alexander and Max Stafford Clark. And um and I got I got the job. And so my agent said, well look, you're going to learn more at the Royal Shakespeare Company than you're going to learn in your third year at drama school. So leave drama school and go up to Stratford. Um and so that's what I did. Um and so it was just an audition process, really. And I just got very lucky with the three. I didn't end up working with Greg Doran. I, I, um, I worked with Adrian Noble uh, in this beautiful production of A Winter's Tale, which is what uh, John Nettles was playing Leontes in. And we came to Sydney uh, and did it at the Opera House in Sydney, um, which was uh, thrilling, absolutely thrilling. We, we had a really, really wonderful time. Was that about 1990? Yeah. Right. It was ninety. Must have been ninety two, three. By the time we got to you guys, right. we went. We came to you. Did we come to you in Sydney? Don't Maybe tell I'm me you mistaken. saw that one, Philip. You didn't <laughs> see that one. Um, I, I think I saw. I think I saw it in on Stratford on Avon in nineteen ninety one, ninety two. Yeah, that's there. when it. That's when it was. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. I, I'm I just saw, thinking. I, 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 saw think, that, I, think, I, I saw that production. Did you? Well, it was yes. balloons and Samantha Bond. It was yeah, fab. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It was amazing. yeah, really gorgeous. Yeah, it was a gorgeous production. Um, and that I'm just thinking whether we did come to Sydney. Maybe we went to Wellington. Maybe we didn't make it to Sydney. Maybe we went to Wellington. I've, my memory it was it was you know some time ago. <laughs> my memory's gone a little bit. Anyway, we came your way, yes. um, and uh, uh, and uh, had a wonderful time. Yeah, if, if it had come to Sydney, I would have seen it in Sydney as well. So I, yeah, I, I don't think it came to Sydney. It must have been Wellington then. It must have been Wellington. I, I saw it on. I yeah. saw it at Stratford upon Avon. Yeah, yeah, on yeah. One of, one of my trips over with my yeah, I was over there. In, yeah, yeah. Well, it was a fab show and really, really popular. Went on a big European tour and then a massive world tour. It was great. Yes. Well, my my mother came with me because she had a huge crush on John Nettles. Oh yeah, right. No, fair enough. Yeah, we all did. <laughs> He was really hitting the weights then as well, so he was absolutely built. Um, uh, he was solid, really solid uh, unit. He was brilliant. So you, you worked in the theatre for quite a few years, and you did mm. lots of plays, theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what, what was it? What was the first time you decided? Why did you first? Because there was a few television stuff you started coming over to do as well, like the bill and things. I think you started doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, I mean, it's just. It's sort of the in those days was the kind of actor's life, generally speaking, is that you you cut your teeth in in the provinces basically. You cut your teeth in theatre, um, and then started to audition for for TV and get you know and, and work your way into that. And it felt like a separate business, to be honest. You know, myself and 
and my, my sort of contemporaries were, were quite with the theatre seemed to be where we would where we would spend our careers that seemed to be the sort of the feeling and and that the, the and I was championed by um by Max Stafford Clark who who was who gave me work for years and 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 I and I worked with him on many productions which was a which was a great privilege and and um and so we thought that was our kind of thing um and then and then I just got lucky with a couple of TV auditions I think early on did a couple of BBC things and then I got the I got into Cracker I, I did a there was an episode of Cracker, the last one, it was like a feature length episode and it was um, filmed in Hong Kong. And that sort of helped me into the TV and film um, side of the business. Uh, and, th and that was a real, that was a real learning experience and an extremely rewarding one. And Robbie Coltrane was, was, uh, was fabulous to work with. And, and, uh, and I learned a great deal from him actually. And, um, and from that, I, 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 uh, that's when I came to Sydney. After that, I, 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 I while I was filming that, I, I, I got the um, the movie with Kate Blanchett and uh, and Ray Fiennes. Shakespeare's Love. No, Oscar and Lucinda. Oh, did I do Shakespeare in Love first? But I did Oscar and Lucinda. Must have come. Uh, I don't know. Yep, Again, the, the timeline slightly, timeline slightly uh, misty. Uh, but but uh, but I got the wonderful film Oscar and Lucinda. Uh, you know, Australian story and a, and a fabulous um, book. And one of the things, it was fairly relatively low budget. And one of the things they'd cut out for, for budgetary reasons was my character, Sir Ian Wardley Fish, who is still one of my best named and most loved characters I've played, um, turns up in Sydney at the end of the book and has this hilarious journey on a donkey uh, through the bush to go and find Ray Fine's character. Um, and they cut it all because they couldn't afford it. Um, and I joked all the way through filming in in Oxford and uh, and Cornwall and London that I would come to Sydney uh, even if I had to shoot it myself. And then there was some disaster with some film stock, and they had to fly me to Sydney to reshoot it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, even though I didn't get the end of the film, I still managed to get a trip to Sydney. So. Uh, so uh, it was very lucky. But that was first meeting Kate Blanchett, my first meeting of Ray Fiennes, my first movie. Um, and uh, and that was just thrilling because it was a, it was a great, great uh, story. Not it didn't do massive business in the in the cinemas, but it was a what well, is a wonderful film. Really, really yes. lovely film. Gillian Armstrong. Really good. Yes. She's a, yeah, she's pretty, pretty prolific. <laughs> doing yeah, stuff yeah. at the moment, isn't she? Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so uh, in terms of acting between theatre and television, was it was there a big transition you had to make in terms of how you, how you went from one to the other? I feel like there was. Now, I'm looking back, I wish I could do it again. That that my early TV work, movies, I didn't have a problem with. Movies suited me really well, um, but TV is different. It's a different skill in some ways, but I believe now that. It's a Michael Caine quote. It's look them in the eye and tell the truth. Or where, however you do that, if that's audio or movies or theatre or TV, that's your route in. If you're lying, if you're trying to play the camera or trying to think what lens is it, how, you know, can I wave my arms around or should I be absolutely still? They're very close. The camera seems to be very close to me. You're going to just 
it up. And and so the the you know if you can just portray your character with truth and with focus, then you're then it doesn't matter whether you're standing on a stage or or, or in front of a camera. Um, and that's the lesson I've learned. It took me a long long time, and I've learned it far too late. But it but that that's is what, what I wish I could go back and change was not trying, you know, I, I I knew about lens lens sizes. I knew, you know, I knew what I, I was thinking about lighting. I, you know, and I was playing all those, all those bits, which is really none of my business. And, and I think it, you know, it made the, my early TV performances a little bit weird in my eyes. Um, and, uh, and I wish I sort of knew then what I know now. Um, and I wish I just committed. Do you actually look back at the performances and see what you did? Absolutely and... not. No, no. I don't even look <laughs> at the things I do. I do now. Um, I am going to. I've just received today um, a copy of a film called Conspiracy, um, which uh, I made in 1999 um, because it's a it's a wonderful, an extraordinary, and terrifying film um, about the meeting at Varsay, all these top Nazi lawyers um, as to what to do about the Jewish problem. And it's and it's like a load of civil servants talking about gas chambers and gas trucks and they're working out the logistics. And it's terrifying and verbatim from the meeting. And it and my son is studying that period of history. And so I will watch that. Um, and it's it it really is a and it, again it wasn't a massive deal in the I can't I don't think it was made it can't have been made as a TV movie but it, extraordinary team of people Frank Pearson directed it who, who at the time was the chairman of the, Olymp of the Olympics of the Oscar committee um, and he wrote Cool Hand Luke and all these extraordinary movies and and had directed a lot of them too and he directed it. At, and it was like being in. It was the, my first taste of Hollywood. He was he he directed it like this was a big Hollywood blockbuster, even though it was just a load of English guys and Stanley Tucci sitting around a table for weeks, ten weeks. We did this meeting, and uh, and so I will watch that again, um, not just because it's it's uh, his you know it's, it's helpful to my son's uh, studies, but because it's a it, it's a great great film that I haven't seen since it was uh, released. Um, it's got Stanley Tucci, as I said, it's Ken Branagh, Colin Firth. All these phenomenal um, actors. Tom Tom Hiddleston even is is in his first oh, ever job. Grief. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you, you can drop a few names along the way, can't you? <laughs> oh yeah, all day. <laughs> Somebody stop me. <laughs> I, I'll drop a name for you. Um, I, I noticed you toured for quite a few years with the Teletubbies. They're, yeah, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. I don't know who. <laughs> that's not true, is it? No, I don't know no. who put it in. <laughs> <laughs> and I got uh, I got awarded email of the year from my agents when I emailed them to say should we be worried that on my Wikipedia page it says that I did a five year tour of the Teletubbies as Tinky Winky, and that was my email and I, and I got email of the year award um, uh, <laughs> and they said that they didn't think it was anything to worry about. I um I asked my son if he knew anything about that, and he said no. And I said, do you know who could have done that? <laughs> and he said, Matt, who is a friend of ours. And I called Matt and I said, Matt, do you know anything about this? And he said, no. And I said, do you know anyone who could have done it? And he said, Harry. 
and that was my son's name. So one of those two, or both. Or both together. <laughs> both together have altered my Wikipedia page. I know. I mean, it's it's extraordinary if anyone bothered to do the maths, how I fitted those five years into my career, because I was fairly busy around those times. I, I was just um, moonlighting off as Tinky Winky. <laughs> I um, I did actually do the maths. I was reading it through and thinking, someone's put that in. I was going to ask, ask you about that. <laughs> But yeah, okay. How old is the son? How old is your son? He's fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah, no, it's I... just destroyed my faith in Wikipedia again. Oh uh, yeah, mate. No, totally. <laughs> I didn't feel I needed to. I thought it'd be sour grapes to take it down, and if I took it down, they'd just put something else up. So I might as well just leave it. Very <laughs> so funny. It amused me early today. Um, well, when you worked touring as the Tully Tubbies in 2015, yeah. you actually worked on the Doctor Who show and worked with. Peter Capaldi. Yeah, there you go. There you so, go. That's, I, I, that's, that's a true, that's a true fact. I'm yeah, true, fact. <laughs> true <laughs> fact. How did how did you get the job with um, Doctor Who? Again, that was an audition process. I I, I know Ed Bazalgett, um, who directed it from we'd worked together previously, um, and uh, he just said, "Look, it's not a, it's not a huge part, but you get to wear a ridiculous beard." Um, do you want to do it? And then I said, definitely, yeah. So I grew this ridiculous beard, much far, far more ridiculous than this. Um, and the first thing they did was shave it off. And I'm so glad they did because they, what they gave me was so extraordinary yep. <laughs> that, uh, that um, I, I was delighted to have it. Uh, and, and that's why uh, Peter Capaldi uh, uh, calls me Heidi with these extraordinary um, plat, beard plats that I had. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think I mean it's one of those characters that stood out because of being Heidi. You just you know he made yeah. so much fun of you. Um, yeah, yes, exactly. Was, was it much of a production? How how long were you actually filming for? We were there for a week, um, doing our bits. There's obviously you know there's quite a lot of stuff happening um, elsewhere in the episode, um, uh, but but so we we were in Cardiff for about a week. Uh, really, really lovely. Uh, people that I was with, I spent most of my time with them. Um, Tom Sturton, who's a, who's a, who's a comedian and re- very very funny, um, and we had a great great time. And it was lovely to work with Peter. He was he was uh, brilliant. They all were. They were just lovely. It was a really uh, really uh, great experience. Now, about the same time, your first big finish Doctor Who came out as well, which was Dark Eyes Four. Yeah, yeah. Um, was, did one follow the other? Do you know, do you remember how they worked? Um, I don't. They certainly weren't related um in any way in, in that i think that my time i think they probably worked with nicola a bit before then it was sort of it was around that time i was go i was beginning to say why haven't big finish phoned me right. was that was the sort of feeling that all my friends had done it and yeah, so I hadn't, so I was Nic- getting Nicola quite done, Nicola had done two box sets of there you dark go. guys before you did. Yeah. She'd also done the one yeah. off with Sylvester McCoy. I think I'd said to her, "Tell whoever it is <laughs> I want a job. that you won't do any more unless <laughs> they <laughs> they get me in." So, uh, so yes, we 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 bribed them, and I and then they and then finally they did. That's not um, brothers blackmail. Okay. That's well blackmail, and truly that's blackmail. What, that's what I mean. <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> Are you an artist, Monsieur Doctor? Well, we can't. What is your medium? Time. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Dark Eyes 4. I've lost something. I've reason to believe it's close by. I, I wonder, and this might sound odd, but have you seen a large blue box recently? There are hundreds of ships. Thousands. Alert High Command. They're heading straight for us. You fool. You're too late. <laughs> 
and it's hard to explain, but let's just say there was a glitch in the chronology of the universe. Last! You must have damaged the timelines more than I thought. The Doctor must be found! What's happening to your eyes? They're turning black. I am the destiny and salvation of the Dalek race. I will control all Dalek operations throughout all of time! Time controller? What do you control exactly? Stomach! Ah! Please, 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 please. No applause. I am just your humble master. Must. Stop. Time Lord. I was always coming back. I've just had to do it a little sooner than I'd have liked, that's all. It's Molly. It's something to do with Molly. Doctor! Now we talk. Big finish. We love stories. Exterminate! Did you have much of a Doctor Who background before then? Um, not hugely. As a child, I, I was sort of traumatised early on by the last couple of series of Pertwee. Um, I was fairly traumatised. And then I sort of dipped back in when Tom Baker was on it. And then I had this extraordinary... I must have been a little older because I was on my own in London and I was walking down the street and Tom Baker was walking towards me and he was so impressive. And in my memory, he was in full Doctor Who costume, but I, I, I imagine he wasn't probably <laughs> in not. retrospect, probably not, <laughs> but in my mind he did. You, you may be in your Teletubbies outfit. Well, yeah, I mean, it could have been, it's the mist of time, but he walked past me and I was obviously sort of, I'd slowed down and was staring at him. And so he fixed me with his eyes as he passed me, knowing I was, you know, very much his kind of target audience and terrified me, froze me to the spot and walked on. And I dared to turn round and he'd stopped and was staring at me <laughs> from a few yards down the road. And I was absolutely terrified. He'd done, clearly done it on purpose to terrify me. <laughs> it worked brilliantly. <laughs> And, and and I fell in love with him there and then. Um, so that was my 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 sort of overarching memory of Doctor Who from my uh, from my childhood. But but um, it wasn't massive in my childhood. So my learning curve over particularly over the last three years uh, has been very very steep, um, which has been brilliant because we have this this uh, this streaming service BritBox and the whole of the classic series are all on there. So I need them for research all the time. Um, and that's how I found the the um, the episode I wrote for River Song. That's how I found my way into her to her um, story. Was going back and watching previous episodes. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, so no. So it's much much bigger part of my life now than it's ever been. Have Have you ever crossed paths with Tom at all in no. Big Finish to tell him that story? No. Sadly, I've got. Uh, I have him in in an episode of Unbound, in the first episode, um, but I wasn't able to direct him. It was done by others. Um, uh, so uh, so I didn't. Uh, you know, otherwise, no, I'd have liked to have told, told him that story. I know he'd have uh, he'd have said this. Yes, sounds like me. <laughs> so I'm sure he would have really liked the story. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was going to ask about the Unbound later, but what you just brought up now, in terms of that beginning section, then with with Tom and with Sadie and um, oh, and Christopher, Christopher, Christopher. yeah, um, Christopher Nail, of course. Um, so th- were they just? Did they just do that scene 
tacked onto something else that they were recording at the time and another director uh, that's right that was that's the that's the easy you know there are huge sort of budgetary constraints and and so that was the the simplest way of doing it rather than having to call them in just for those first two or three scenes um so yes they picked it up when they were they were doing a day on something else um and uh, and there there were several versions, so I got to sort of you know I got to collate it, um, but I didn't get to speak to them on the day. But they do such a great job, you know, they, they, and they know they so know what they're doing that you know I, they don't need me. <laughs> so. Those those first five minutes are very powerful throughout the I mean, yeah. they and the changeover. It's a very I mean, it, yeah. I mean not, we're not spoiling too much. I mean I think people are aware that Tom is it. Um, my reaction was just with you know because John Dorney writing the first script is that John Dorney just loves to. Murder off the male companions. That's that's yeah. that's the third male yeah. companion of Doctor Who. He's killed. Yeah, totally. It's jealousy. He's an actor, basically, isn't he? So like <laughs> he's just killing off the competition. Yeah, I think we need a new companion. He'll say shortly. <laughs> um, no, I know he's got. A, yes, he has got that history. Um, but what a cracking episode! You know, what a yep. great episode it is. I've had lots of names. Only one that really counts. I am... The universe cracked. A million timelines, a million possibilities sparked into flame and died. Marco, you're gone. The Daleks are... And in one of them was you. What crime... What did I do? But in the new reality, you're an aberration. A remnant. Um, can't you hear that? Hear what? Think I see my own death. He's the doctor now. Well, a doctor of war. What are you waiting for? I think you're afraid afraid that you might have developed a taste for it. For what? Genocide. Big finish for the love of stories. Can I just jump back a bit before before uh, you came into direct Big Finish? I noticed that you were in uh, some BBC radio plays, The Lovecraft mm. Investigations. What, what are your yeah, memories yeah. of those? That was just couple of years before the pandemic started so yeah we recorded one during lockdown yeah um that's with this i've 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 had two sort of sets of of golden handcuffs big finish now and previously it was this um radio production company called um, sweet talk productions and they've used me on various things over the years intermittently um and then a friend of mine and nicholas called julian simpson had been writing this sort of extraordinary um, virtual world called Mythos, and he'd uh, used Nicola and Phoebe Fox and others uh, in this world, created these characters, and he wanted to find a way of of continuing that. Uh, And he hit upon the Lovecraft stories, some of which... I mean, there's accusations of racism and anti-Semitism in his stories, so that they don't follow... The, the narrative entirely but they're inspired by the by hp lovecraft stories um and under the banner of the lovecraft investigation so we did we did three series um 
of that, uh, the Charles Dexter Ward was the first one, then the Whisper in Darkness, um, and then Shadows Over Innsmouth. And they're just, you know, similar to similar to the Doctor Who world where of kind of mystery and and shock and that's that that sort of fine line between humor and horror and and that's where these lie in that sort of place with these extraordinary characters and it was set up as a as a podcast so my which were huge you know increasingly big things particularly obviously uh, uh, during lockdown but um so they were set up as a true crime podcast and in fact i've got i have several stories of people believing that matthew hayward my character and the entire thing was a true crime a true podcast despite the outlandish <laughs> stories <laughs> of of devils and angels uh, and aliens so extraordinary <laughs> that people could be taken in um but uh, but it's a great format you know really good format you know well, if awesome Orson Welles could do it. Well, why couldn't exactly. it be done, why couldn't uh, it be that, done again? That's what, yes, that's what uh, struck me too. Yeah, my cousin, in fact, uh, was uh, looking for a podcast for her her run, uh, her daily run, and she asked somebody uh, in, in one of her friendship groups, and he said, "You've got to listen to um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. It's extraordinary." And she didn't know about it, looked it up, and then got back to the guy and said, "That's my cousin." And he went, "Your cousin's Matthew Hayward." <laughs> And he was totally sure that it was a real thing, um, uh, but but it's it, it's a great great set of stories, really fabulously written and fabulously re researched, and and, uh, and very uh, very exciting. And and it's and it's shocking, it's shocking in a way that 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 that, that often Doctor Who can be so atmospheric that when something happens there is a genuine jump scare and if you've got headphones on and round here there are woods and stuff if i were i was walking out in the woods listening to it one day when it first was released this uh, the first one charles dexter ward and i jumped out of my skin and, and you know and i knew what was coming i've read the scripts over and over again and and i still jumped and that's i think you know a nice power of audio i think you know that that it can do that when you've got it when you're absorbed and it's right in your head um, it, you can really, you can really mess with people. I think it's fab. So, Peladon, you said was given to you first to direct. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it uh, was. Yeah. Did Before you... Jenny? Sorry. Uh, Before Jenny, no, Jenny uh... was released first. Jenny was released first, but Peladon was my first uh, thing I directed. Um, so that was my my baptism. Yeah. So I guess you had to research the uh, John Pertwee stories. Get yeah, a handle exactly. On that. Yeah, that was the first. That was when I when I uh, downloaded BritBox onto my uh, devices so that I could uh, uh, watch all of those, um, and it was incredibly helpful, obviously, uh, to watch that and seeing David Troughton um, as a, you know it must have been one of his first TV jobs, or one of his first jobs. Um, you know he can't have been more than twenty. He's so young uh, uh, playing the the young king. Uh, and then to have him back playing the same guy sort of 50 years later. Yeah, thrilling. And we, we uh, discussed it briefly and he was very much of the same mind of, uh, as me that the, he hadn't learnt anything <laughs> in his 50 years on Peloton and was still a feather for every wind that blows and, uh, and naive and, you know, uh, which was lovely to hear it from, from that, you know, that sort of the gravitas of his voice to hear that kind of naivety and joy was, uh, was, uh, was great. What's the saying? You, aside from the people you're with and the books that you read, you you are the same person 
And so yeah, a, yeah, well, exactly. Yes, a great exactly king that. who is not mixing with new people and probably not yeah, too yeah, much isn't reading. going to change much, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And you'll notice, you'll notice if you cross-reference me with any of the cast that the guest cast, you'll find that our careers cross paths many, many times because I just got my friends in because I needed people I knew would deliver and not question and uh and would come with something and and so you know uh, and, and i you know they were fab so what, what other, the, what other direction work have you done have you done is this have you done other direction work in theater or elsewhere uh no i've i i did with this the the company um that i mentioned before sweet uh sweet talk productions that did the lovecraft investigations they do a lot of work with the bbc do a lot of dramas and and um and various other things and what their producer karen rose said to me one day we were recording so I, I can't remember what it was it was uh, it was some it was uh edgar Allan poe stories and some sort of i think they were christmas time kind of horror stories for the for the radio four and uh she, we came out for a, for a break and she said have you ever thought of directing and i went oh god have i am i talking too much I'm really sorry. I don't. I don't mean to. No, no, no. I'm in a good way. But no, no. Tell me to shut up. You've got to tell me to shut up. It's none of my business. And she said, No, 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 no. I'm. I'm complimenting you. And I said, No. I. I you know. No. Not really. I'd love to, but no. And she said, Well, well. Why don't you direct something for us? And I said, Well, what? And she said, Well, bring me a script, and let's do it. And I said, But I don't have a script. And she said, Well, write one. And none of these things had really crossed my mind. And I said, Look, I do have a story but I, I that i'd like to do but but you know I, i'd want to write it but i've never written anything she said well write it and so i wrote this story um which is a true story and uh she loved it and it got commissioned by the bbc and so uh, I, I directed it as well where they produced it and their sound designer who i know really really well who's a complete genius david thomas um we recorded it and uh, the big, very beginning of lockdown, and and uh, and it was and it was a ex fabulous experience. Again, I dragged all my friends in, um, and uh, and it was uh, it was just great. It's a really cracking story about um, about George Blake, the the double agent who was imprisoned in the uh, in early sixties in Wandsworth Prison, and um, not in Wandsworth in Wormwood Scrubs, and um, escaped. And it's the story of his escape. Because it was bizarre, and it wasn't really so much about George Blake himself. It was about the people who, who, who did it. They, who were guys like us three, just normal people, who were they were activists. They were anti-nuclear campaigners. They weren't criminals, and because of that, they made no criminal moves. So the police never found them because they weren't doing what criminals would do. <laughs> yep. Like they stayed where they were rather than trying to get away. You know, they stayed within a mile of the prison for about six weeks and nobody was looking there. They were looking at Heathrow and they were looking at London Airport and they were looking at, the, at Dover. You know, they weren't looking at around the corner. So they had extraordinary luck um, and extraordinary courage and, and, uh, and, got him, uh, and got him out, got him east. Amazing. So it's an amazing story. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that was my, that was my, my sort of way into big finish i sent them i sent them that and said you know I, i've got at least this much experience you know let's let's work together and i'm very touched that uh barnaby just described us philip as uh, normal people two <laughs> doctor who fans it's i'm almost, I'm almost shedding a tear um, <laughs> could, could you tell us barnaby what 
what is the process as a as a director for a big finish story when you get the script? So what's the process from script to the point where you get everything down and send it off to sound design? Um, I, I'm uh, one of the, the well, the first thing that happens is I'm sent a a script that has been looked at by the editor and looked at by the producer and given to me and I'm allowed to do a pass on the script. And I very rarely have anything to to say. Um, usually it's typos, which just I know you notice as an actor because I know that rather than even if it's a missing, you know, a missing of or a missing apostrophe, for actors reading it on the hoof on the day, they'll they may trip on it, and that's going to cost us time to retake and all the rest of it. So let's get it absolutely right so that you know we have the best chance of getting it all done in the day. So so I I, I get rid of this, any typos that I find. But occasion, very occasionally, I might have a, a thought about something and then put that to the writers and the and the script editors and see if they like it. There was one in in Dust Devil um, where Perry and the Doctor in the, the original script they they land in a futuristic city, um, and I just asked the question whether we could do it, make it London and make it now rather than you know rather than zippy motorbikes and you know things flying in the air. Uh, make it something really down to earth and regular Piccadilly Circus, busy buses, taxis, you know, uh, and make it sort of something oddly recognizable as a, as a major city. And they thought, yeah, look, yeah, do it. And there's any so small rewrite and, uh, you know, not going to take them any time. And, and, uh, and, and so that goes through. So, so I get a creative input early on. Um, and then it's just about preparation. I cast as I read the scripts I'm casting, so I'm noting as I go instinctively who who I know or have heard that I would like to be like to hear doing these parts. So the casting is happening as I'm as I'm reading, um, and and then particularly after it's cast, it's it's about prepping for the day. That our, our, our recording days are short and the scripts are long, so that doesn't ever add up. And we, I do a sort of, I've never thought I'd be someone who had a spreadsheet ever, but I do spreadsheets now. So I have a spreadsheet of times, scenes, actors. And you've got to stick to it if, as much as possible. If you don't, it's all just going to fall into jelly and then disappear by the end of the day. And you haven't done it. And, and you know, and, it, and it's just, you've got all this stuff you have to pick up. So you've got to be ready. And so my script, by the time I got it on my iPad, got a little um, Apple pen, and I write all over my script. And it is just nobody else could use that script to record, apart from me, because you can barely see the script underneath my red pen scrawls with arrows, initials, asterisks on everything. And and I have to, each scene, I have this long list of asterisks, initials where I go, actually, I think you should say that or don't say that line, cut that line, say that all at the same time, all you guys. And it's, you know, it's just a confusion of red pen. Um, but we get through it. And, and, uh, and so there's a, there's, there's a lot of preparation before the day. Uh, and then the day is, is mainly managing time. Um, and allowing for 
errors, allowing for third, you know, third takes, fourth takes if they're needed, you know, allowing for for actors to find themselves, find their their feet and uh, find their rhythm. And, uh, and and then managing the time up to the end of the day, and hopefully you know finishing early and and uh, and getting people uh, off. And one one of the things that's that's been great about recording remotely is that people, generally speaking, are at home, um, and so they they're they're in at home anyway. So one, they might as well record something. So most of my actors say yes. Um, so they might as well do something rather than nothing. Um, and also they've got no commute. They're right, they're right there. If I need them suddenly, if I get ahead of myself, I, uh, then I can just text them and they'll come straight back to the mic and we don't, we don't waste any time. So it's a, you know, it's a long prep, it's a long process of preparation. That's the, that's the key to it, uh, is do all the work beforehand and don't do it on the hoof. So everything you've done so far has been remote? No studio? Uh, yeah, no studio. No. Um, so it's all been remote. Um, occasionally, we've had actors that we need that don't have uh, home equipment, like Jeffrey Beavers, for instance, who doesn't have a setup at home. So we we get a studio involved, uh, and we've got two or three that we still use. And so we've been able to record some people that don't have uh, home setups um, on occasion. So uh, so uh, so that's been really useful. Do Do you think it's a benefit being an actor and a director? I think so. To some extent, I do, certainly for, as far as Big Finish are concerned, because I pick up all the small parts that you can't afford to pay someone to do. So uh, so I'm, I'm literally guard one, two, and three. <laughs> so, and I have to note myself as to which guard it is. You've got notes like high-pitched one or, you know, <laughs> grumpy Welsh, one. Welsh, Scottish. <laughs> Welsh, Scottish, yeah, exactly. <laughs> West Country one. Um, uh, so, so, no, I think it's, I think it's not essential to be a performer to direct, but I think sometimes it gives you a shorthand, perhaps with some actors, gives you a shorthand to to fight, help them find what it is that you're looking for, because you you've worked with the same director, or you've or you've worked together and know each other, or you know what kind of actor they are, what type of type of how they like to work. So you can, you know, some actors might just need a word, and they'll go, yep. Yeah. And then, and that's that. You know, that I don't need to go into anything. Some actors would like a little bit more context. Um, uh, so that you know, being on the opposite end of, of notes and, and directing processes, I think is works to my advantage. Yeah. Are there disadvantages? Do you? I don't think so. I don't think so. No. I no no. It, it, it you know there are you know everyone has their shortcomings. You know, there's no way I could play Barusa like Sanju Bhaskar I couldn't do it I need Sanju Bhaskar to do that and so I I can hear hear what he's doing and and find a way to communicate what a way I'd like him to try but I don't think I wish I'd done it because it would all be easier because <laughs> it, it wouldn't you know so uh, so there are I, I I mean I don't at the moment don't see the disadvantages so there's no feeling of of you know, I you know, I I could do this better, or I wish I was doing it, or they're being paid more than me. Um, so, you you mentioned Sanjeev there. There's mm. there's actors like him, actors like Nicola, who are totally recognisable even on this side of the planet. Every time I turn on the television, they're there. Mm. Mm. Um, what what is the appeal from these big, well known actors? Uh, like Nicola and Sanjeev, etc., uh, to work for Big Finish, small company, uh, because because of who 
the people are because of David Richardson, because of Nicholas Briggs and because of Colin Baker and Tom and all of these people that they, and Jason, who I actually didn't know personally until this year uh, and, and Jason Hegelary too. But at the time our connection was David Richardson and, and Nick Briggs and they they run a company that I've always wanted to work for and have never found. There are buildings and institutions you work for as an actor who always claim company. When my dad worked at the National in the 1960s under, under Laurence Olivier, that was a company. It was Anthony Hopkins and Maggie Smith and all these extraordinary people, Derek Jacobi. They all were there and they all played parts in different plays. So my dad would be, was Phoebe in the All Male As You Like It. Uh, Tony Hopkins had a tiny part of Audrey in, in, in that uh, production. And then the following month, my dad was Edward II, backed up by Tony Hopkins, and they had the lead, they had the leads. And that's what a company is. And the, and the company is run, you know, the, I mean, I think it was slightly different. I was going to say, you know, it was run without stress. And there was a lot of stress in that period because they were building the, the National as it is now. So so there's a lot of stress in that changeover. But the, but the, that was a company. And, he, and and Big Finish have a they have a company of actors and, and often they obviously invite new people in all the time. But they, if, it, if you're not enjoying it, don't do it, is their feeling. And that's what I feel if you're not having a good time stop so you know if you don't enjoy coming to Big Finish don't come back if you don't want to play 4,000 parts other than the part that you've been paid to play don't come if you want to spend your day that otherwise you'd be picking your hole and calling your agent if you want to spend that day having a fat laugh playing extraordinary characters from all over the imagined universes, then come in and let's have a great time. And that's how they run the company. It's hugely attractive. And I couldn't be more grateful and happier to be where I am now with them, where they're calling me and offering me these extraordinary scripts written by these hugely talented and imaginative writers linked with these great actors who know so m what they're, I mean, the most of my stuff has been with Colin Baker. You know, he brings everything, knows what he's doing, hugely receptive, very, very funny. And, and Nicola Bryant and Paul McGann and the, all these people that come and I've been working with them um, doing the space security service new series so they've got a whole load of other actors they really know their characters and they and then i get the opportunity to offer work to my friends who i know will really enjoy themselves but there's nothing my friend rick warden would like more than to play an alien he would just love it he doesn't get to do it in his normal day-to-day -day acting work he came in and he smashed it because he, <laughs> that's why he really, really wanted to be there and to do this character. Uh, and, and that's what you get. And you get a really enjoyable day. Everybody's smiling and everybody wants to do as much as they can to make this as good as it can possibly be.
And that's because of David and Nick and Jason and everyone at, at Big Finish who make who create that atmosphere in which to work. That's my aunt. That's my very long answer to your question. That's great. <laughs> I also get the impression that the Big Finish was quite a lifeline during the pandemic too for a lot of actors. Totally. Yeah, totally. My my me no less than anybody else. I mean, my gosh, it you know, I've I've barely done anything else. Um and it was, it was, you know, there there it was. You could, you know, if actors had set themselves up, there they had this opportunity to 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 do it from home and completely safe. And and I have to say I think that the studio experience with Big Finish is, is something else again, that because there there were these famous lunches that Toby, the engineer who owned the studios, um, Moat Studios, would cook these extraordinary lunches. And, and, and that was one of the draws. You, you know, they don't pay an enormous amount of money. It's better than most. Um, but but for, in our business, it's, you know, it is, it's not what people are used to, particularly for vocal work. And, and so, but these lunches were a huge draw. And, and also you get to meet really lovely people. I mean, I, I, got, uh, I got to spend the day with John Hurt. I'll never forget it, you know, and and um, and th- those sorts of things w- would happen on these recording days in the studio. But as far as from a director's point of view, I think there is a different quality when you're working remotely, where you can't see each other. Um, there is a there's a sort of focus to the listening because you can't see facial expression. You can't see gesture. You can't, you know, you're not getting a, a sense of the physicality of somebody, which can often feed into your performance. All you've got is the sound of their voice. So you, so the listening is much acuter than it. I think it would be in a studio situation where sometimes, like Nicola and I find each other incredibly distracting. And so when we had to do a big finish, we were in booths next to each other and I could see her waving her arms around. She can see me waving my arms about massively distracting and it's very funny and <laughs> and but, but remotely you're just getting that voice that's what you're being given that's what you've got to work with so you're really listening hard for your cues and listening really hard for the sense and for the for the tone of the scene that you're in um and i so i think it's it's an advantage is it a deliberate choice then not to do something like using zoom where you could actually see your performance yeah, it didn't really come up, to be honest. So occasionally, I don't like doing it, but occasionally, in fact, I haven't done it. But I know that some directors and some actors, I think Colin likes to see who, he, who he's working with. So there's a sort of 10-minute Zoom before the recording day so people can see who each other are, which is great. And that's that's absolutely fine. To, to me, that's 10 minutes I could be recording. So I don't do it because <laughs> I want to get on with it. Um, uh, and, I, and I hope, and, and certainly it's been my experience that the days are still hugely enjoyable and, and everyone gets on really well and, and, and often, and always, in fact, Colin compliments, um, either at the time compliments the actors before he says goodbye or he gets in touch with me afterwards and says, what an extraordinary group of actors. So, so, you know, the, 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 it's works. It still, you know, it still works. And the, the, the recording process we use this um, called clean feed, which is absolutely fantastic where our engineers can record all tracks. However many actors and people you've got on can record those tracks all separately, his end, we then do, we record a backup our end, each actor um, uh, records their backups, their end, and then they collate the two. 
Um, so there's no need for picture. And so, and, and I know, I mean, myself anyway, I'm a, I'm a very physical actor on, when I'm acting on audio. I don't want other people witnessing that. Um, so, so I'm very happy that, that no one can see me. Now, Big um, Fish has now cast you as a lead in the new, scene, yeah. in the new release of UFO. So yeah. how, how did that come about? That was Nick Briggs. It happens quite a lot. He's done it twice. Nick's done it twice, but I do it all the time too. We'll be working on something and Nick would go, Barney, um, I'm going to send you a script. <laughs> and it's just because we hear it listening to each other's voices all the time. And, I, and, and so he sent me UFO. He sent me the Sherlock Holmes, the, the, um, the uh, Jekyll and Hyde first apropos of some of something we were recording together and then and then the the ufo uh, thing came up um and i did it to him uh with a with a, a lovely part where i just thought the only person i can think of for this role is i was trying to cast and then i'm on with nick briggs and he's darlicking around i'm thinking oh it's nick briggs that's who i need <laughs> quick cast him um and uh and so yes we had a chat about ufo he said watch the series I watched episode one of the series and called him back and said, no, Nick, no, this, <laughs> we can't do this show. And he went, no, 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 that, 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 the first episode, forget that, you've got to keep watching because the first episode is so full of innuendo. It's so crammed with cameras following ladies' bums down corridors. It's, it's sort of soft porn. And, and I said, we can't carry this legacy forward. <laughs> And lots of um, drinking and smoking. And loads of drinking and smoking. Um, and uh, he said, no, 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 they sort themselves out, which they do very quickly. And it's mainly gone by episode two and certainly by the end of, uh, you know, by, by three or four in, the, the, it, it's completely gone. Um, and that's a great, for the time, a great taste choice. You know, having shot their first episode, they must have gone, this is, this is inappropriate in all ways for this series. Surely in the future we've moved on. Um, and so very bright of um, of the Andersons to spot that. And it's great. I mean, it was hugely daunting. I, I, I can't... Ed Bishop was renowned for his voice. You know, how can you... <laughs> unless you're John Coleshaw, how can you possibly <laughs> do that? I don't do impressions. Um, uh, and so how can you match... A, a guy whose voice was so distinctive um, and, and very sort of gravelly and deep without being, um, but with, 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 with a full range of inflection. So very hard to mimic. Uh, and so what I tried to do was, you know, I realised I had to be me. I had to be me playing that part uh, uh, with a nod as much as possible to, to Ed Bishop's delivery, which is very, you know, he was tense, wasn't he? So I, uh, you know, that's what you that you know you got to bring that tension into it. But the first the first episode spends quite a long. But the the, the first series, um, I'm hope I hope of many, um, spends quite a lot of time with, with, with in the in the TV series he, he, uh, just because of their, their their sort of constraints. He had to get into the whole alien fighting thing pretty quickly, whereas we've got a bit more time, and so it takes him a bit more a bit more time to get into to to be persuaded to be involved um so that's an interesting story that wasn't developed in the in the, in the tv show so so that was good to um that was good to to sort of mine um 
and uh, and so it was great fun to do you know it's 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 and the other thing in the early in the early certainly in these early episodes he gets a lot more action you know the ed bishop was ba- mainly in the office wasn't he um and but in this he's out in the field so that you know that that's fun those those scenes are fun to do uh, on audio the, the sort of fighting and diving out of cars and exploding it's all good fun to do he he did drive around a lot in that car he did drive car. around in the car quite a lot yeah 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 with a burning look at the you know, down to the side of camera we we can't really that doesn't really translate i'm afraid to audio so we had to cut most of that um but so uh, but it's great stuff there's a lot of stuff where nick's directing you and there's a number of stuff that you're directing nick does yeah. it just swap over quite casually does does it ever feel strange when you're changing backwards and forwards no nick's fun really good fun to direct <clears throat> i had this character that i suddenly heard here that I, that I was speaking about that i, that I suddenly heard his, him doing was a sort of kind of an old school spy kind of character um and I found a way of directing very quickly with him where I mean, the first time I did it, I said to him, Nick, before you say that last line, could you just remove your spectacles? And he went, oh, yes. Yep. And he just, you could hear him just go. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> the next time I said, uh, you've definitely, as you walk in, before you speak, remove your fedora. And you had him come in and go, excuse me. And, and it just, you know, there's a shorthand like that. Um, I mean, generally character driven, but, you know, I knew he was going to get what I meant. <laughs> you know, giving him visual visual cues was uh, was very useful. Um, so, no, it's fun. It's good. And he, you know, he, he's got great attention to detail as as i have and and uh you know he and we both want the best of everything so so he you know it's very easy to work together it's fun now i'm very excited about the forthcoming jekyll and hyde yeah. um I, I love that story and i love all the different iterations of it throughout history mm. um are you directing this or you've got a role i've got a role in it okay yeah. um gabriel utterson the 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 lawyer Yep. Um, and uh, and it's through Utterson that you he sort of takes you through the the story. Um, so that was uh, that was great. That was great to do. Well, Utterson's basically duck. the star of the story. Yeah. Right. Really? Exactly. Uh, exactly. In some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. What did someone say? Oh, yeah. Someone said an actress said to to uh, uh, an older actress. When they came on stage uh, to do a warm up before a play, she went. This young actress said, "And here's the star," and she, "And here's the leading lady." And this, and this older actress turned to, the, to her and said, "No, you are the leading lady. I am the star." And uh, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and so the star of 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 Jekyll and Hyde is Jekyll and Hyde, um, and I and I'm the leading lady, I suppose. Utterson's the leading lady, um, uh, but it but it was it was great. I love that Victorian stuff. Um, uh, it's it's lovely to do that sort of. I mean, I'd love to direct it. Uh, uh, really, I'd love to direct some uh, Paternoster Gang. I don't think I'll ever get the opportunity, but but uh, I love that dark, the dark, smoggy streets. Were, were you involved with the stage play at all? No, no, I wasn't. No. Um, so it was all this. This version was all very uh, very new to me. But it's but it's such a cracking story, you know. As you know, it's such an exciting story, and and I think it 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 bears all sorts of adaptations. And and uh, and this is a really uh, really good one. 
I think it really works and translates from the stage really well. No, it's really good. Yeah. When, when's it being When's it being released? I think about August, August, okay. September, cool. something like that. Great. Great. August. I look forward to it. Yeah, August. I look forward to it. Yeah, brilliant. UFO is coming out the same month. Is it? That's a busy yeah. month, isn't it? It is a busy month. I, yeah. think, I think. I even think your River Song's coming out in August is as it? well. Oh my goodness me! Okay. So, so yeah, big, August everything's coming out for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you must be probably working, doing nothing else but working Big Finish at the moment. Um, yes. Yeah. Your first story. How did how did you come to how did you come to write for Big Finish? I can't remember whether. It was David Richardson. I think he just assumed I would, um, rather than asking me if I'd be interested. Um, <laughs> and so he said, he produces the River Song series, and he said, would you like to write for River Song? Um, and I've directed Alex and worked with her as an actor. Um, over lockdown, I worked with her in an episode with David, um, David Tennant, uh, which was great fun listening to her as River Song, and then I directed her in the Peladon series. And so I thought her voice was very clear in my head. So I said, yes. Um, and then I just had to sort of search out, find something somewhere she hadn't been or or somewhere that hadn't been explored. And um, and I got lucky and, and did find uh, this little gap um, and uh, and put it to David, and he thought that, that it was a, a great idea. So uh, so yeah, I went ahead with that. Which was uh, or your Doctor Who viewing suddenly um, it's paid off. Absolute paid off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, we find we found a really uh, I think really great um, little narrative for for her. Yeah, was it hard to write? I suppose, despite me really hearing her voice very clearly, I really wanted to. Alex to read it and be excited by the things that she had to say and do. And so I felt pressure. And so I had a few goes at her opening scenes, several, several goes at her opening scenes, because I just didn't feel I was quite hitting something that she'd want to walk in and go, oh, yeah, let's do this. And so that was a pressure I put on myself, potentially, but I but and I'm glad I took a lot of time over it because it because it, it worked out um but the main well the, the main challenge was i i came up with this kind of villain guy who i didn't really i mean i don't know i don't know about writing i haven't done it very much but you've hear people say about the characters not knowing where, where where their character is taking them or not understanding their character until the character started to speak and all this kind of stuff, which I'd, I'd always been slightly cynical about. But as I had no idea who this guy was. I knew his name. I knew he was called Mal. That's all I knew. But as soon as he opened his mouth, he could not stop talking. <laughs> and I don't know. I didn't plan it. He was a gobby narcissistic absolute pain in the ass and i couldn't shut him up and that so the biggest challenge was stopping writing him because he had to walk away and allow somebody else to get a word in so that was a quite a big challenge it turned out <laughs> um, and the other challenge was writing for an 11 year old child knowing that that wasn't directorially going to be my problem it was going to be <laughs> ken, it was going to be ken bentley's issue 
And uh, so I merrily wrote a lead part for a young child. Um, and then once I'd finished and it had been accepted, I told Ken Bentley <laughs> what I'd done. Um, and he immediately put in to write episodes for me to direct. Um, and, uh, uh, and But the brilliant, brilliant thing, this, my secret was that my niece, who is 11, is an extremely good and very understated, focused and rather brilliant actor. So I said, there is only one solution to this problem of yours, and that's to cast my niece and I will record her. And that's what um, that's what happened. And so she is in it and is brilliant in it. What an amazing coincidence. You happen to write a part for an 11-year-old and you just happen to have a niece who it's can do the It's the parts. weirdest thing, isn't it? <laughs> the weirdest thing. Yeah, no blackmailing over Seren- that one. It no, just, serendipity just right there. It happens. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, so rules for your son coming up as well? Actually, is your he, son- uh, he hasn't, he hasn't, he's done one thing for me, him and his two of his mates. I've never heard three more reluctant voices ever. They won't make the cut, I can tell you that. So they did some kind of background schoolboys for uh, a, a sick, Doctor Adventure, um, and uh, and uh, he's also in the Lovecraft investigation. So he has done some um, when he was a bit younger. No, I'm not writing. I'm not writing anything for my son, and he wouldn't do it now. Um, what I'd like to do, and David and David Richardson and I have had some early chats about maybe something. There'd be something for Livchenko in my brain somewhere. Um, putting words into Nicola's mouth is not something you do lightly um, but under the guise <laughs> of a writer I might get away with it um, she'll certainly have something to say in the script editing side of things <laughs> I should imagine um, but that would be great if we could work out a way of doing that that would be very very good um, I'd also be extremely interested in um, well, I've got a couple of other things, a couple of other writing jobs on the go for Big Finish, and um, that is very exciting. Well, Barnaby, can I say, extraordinary output you've um, managed to achieve in the last 12 months or so. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, yeah. what you're, you're directing, you're writing, you're acting. Uh, it's been very exciting to watch. Yeah, oh, thank you. Possum. And certainly, thank I mean, you. just three, I mean, the three releases so far in terms of Peladon, um, unbound Jenny, you couldn't get more th- three more different tonally stories yeah. um, from yeah. unbelievable humour to deep blackness and some stuff. Yeah, you know, some of the unbound stuff like what the heck's going on here? Yeah, um, yeah, madness. You know, yeah. It's, it's political thrillers. It's yeah, it's just fantastic. So very excited to see what's coming next. Well, thank you. Well, it's thrilling for me to do. It's really, it's. Uh, I'm really grateful to to Big Finish and to all you guys and your and your fans um, who who why we do it. So uh, so it's just it's a complete pleasure to be involved. Well, Barnaby, thank you so much for your time, and yeah, we may, may get to chat again later. Yeah, I hope so. Anytime, give me a shout if you need to. If you've got any questions, <laughs> okay. Um, lovely guys, lovely to meet you, um, and uh, and we'll talk again soon. To hold in my hands a podcast that contains such power. That power would put me up above the gods. And through the silence of audio, I shall have that power. 
Okay, it was great to talk to him, wasn't it, Philip? It was. Uh, fascinating stories there and yeah, some amazing theatre tours he did. Yeah, <laughs> especially the Teletubbies. The Teletubby tour in particular was just amazing. <laughs> Mate, the anecdotes. Oh, they were endless. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to get some insights from some, from some, well, he's some of the new Big Finish blood that's coming through at the moment. There's quite a lot happening in Big there Finish. Is. New and people coming in. It's very, very exciting. It seems like a time of of really positive change at yeah. Big Finish. Not yeah. not change so much, but sort of evolution. It's development. I mean, I mean, the stuff he's doing is all slightly new, slightly left centre stuff. Mm. Um, and it's yeah, and really, I mean, the, the the Unbound I really really enjoyed. I finished that this week, um, which is probably I don't know when this comes out, but yeah, I mean, really enjoyed that. It was a, it was a great show. Peladon I enjoyed some stories more than others, and and we talked about yeah, my favorite episode of that, which was the the um, Paul McGann one. Yes, lots lots of great stuff. Yeah, and I I just really love the Jenny. Uh, yeah, Jenny box yeah. set too. It was fantastic. It with... was so funny, so lighthearted. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's go into our recommendations for this week. And what I'd like to recommend is something that I can't recommend yet because, Philip, it's your turn. Oh, my turn? Well, let me go then. I'm going to recommend a podcast called Cautionary Tales. Um, nothing to do with Doctor Who whatsoever, um, but something that I'm enjoying listening to. It's an it's a American podcast about things that happen, situations that happen, and what we can learn from them. And so it explores a moment in history. They're usually stories I don't really know anything about. Um, one of them um, just, just recently was all based on a talk show, um, t- talk show of the 1950s, and the fact that one of the big talk shows was actually paying its guests. Um, and it, it explores the whole thing about shame culture and the fact that there were all these famous people who all got paid, or so they weren't paid, they were given the answers because they were, they were popular and the audience wanted to keep seeing them winning. And so they were being fed the answers so they'd stay in week after week after week. And then they'd be made to take a dive at some point before they won too much and made the company go broke. But a lot of them were dragged into a court case and they all lied. Because even though these are all honourable, reputable people, the fear of losing their honour meant more than they were prepared to perjure themselves. And so it just explores human nature, explores what people do, why they do it. Um, you know, there's some talks about how stage hypnotism works. Because I've never understood stage hypnotists and how they had such power and I've seen them working and thinking I don't understand how can how can these people be doing these things do you understand and now I do they're all all the tricks are explained in terms of how it works they're tricks there are all tricks which I hadn't realized is right? it is and it's based on very clever yeah it is very clever anyhow I'm not going to give it away but yeah <laughs> cautionary tales some great great um, episodes if you're just into it's kind of, it's kind of documentaries but understanding the human condition and hu- human psychology. They're, they're so is it Australian? UK? It's American. American. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Yeah. Now, what about you, Dwayne? What do you like? To, what have you been listening I to? am going to do some shameless self-promotion uh, this idea. time. And it's nothing major, really. But for I've noticed that my reading of An Unearthly Child has uh, really been popular on our YouTube channel. Philip, it's astounding. It has got lots of listens, but it's really well well read, Dwayne. I like your voice. Oh, thank you very much. Well, on that note, if you do like my voice, I have done uh, a few other books as well. Um, probably, probably designed for younger readers originally than even Terence Dick's novels. 
Um, these books that I've read are called Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. Do you remember that series? I do, vaguely. Did you ever read any? I would have done, but I, I don't have any. I was pretty obsessed with them as a kid, and uh, I uh, so I had the urge a little while back to, to start putting some down on audio, because I was looking for audio readings of them, and there isn't any. So I thought I'd do some myself. Now, it does seem a bit funny, me doing it in an Australian accent, because I can't do an American accent, not very well anyway, um, and it's all set in California usually, these guys. And so far, I've done three of the three investigators novels. I've done The Secret of Terror Castle, The Mystery of the Whispering Mummy, and The Secret of Skeleton Island. So I've done those three books. So if anyone wants to take a trip back, and uh, if you don't have a copy of the books, you can go and listen to my audio reading, or you can listen to a bit of it, and then get inspired to go and track the books down. They're a bit like the like the Target uh, hardbacks, Philip, they're they're quite collectible now and they're getting very expensive to get hold of. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I've done. I'll put links in the show notes if you want to check out some Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators read by me. Excellent. Well, always good to hear your voice. Oh, thanks, Philip. Uh, that's it for our show today. We are looking forward to uh, getting together again real soon. Thanks for uh, joining me, Philip. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me, Dwayne. See you all next time, guys. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio, episode 107, The Direct Approach, with our guest Barnaby Kay and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Theme music by Joe Kramer. Contact us or check out all our details at sirensofaudio.com. You can send us audio feedback via anchor.fm slash sirensofaudio or drop us a line at sirensofaudio at gmail.com. Also, you can drop a comment if you're watching via YouTube. We love interacting with you. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll catch you next time.